Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Satellites and sensors, river gauges and air monitors, oceanic buoys and trapping cameras. A huge amount of environmental data is being produced every hour all around Aotearoa. Floods of data, mountains of data. How can we possibly make sense of it all? How can we harness it to make predictions about what's coming next? And how can we have confidence in those predictions to make good decisions? Kia ora, no mai haeramai kito tātou au huruhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clerk and Kananaho. Later I visit the Auckland Bioengineering Institute to hear about research into needle-free injections. But first, a trip to the University of Waikato to learn about the data science program Taiao, which might help us wade through this ocean of data. The overall goal is to enable environmental researchers to reach the next level of sophistication in their data analysis. Professor Karen Bryan is an environmental scientist specializing in marine systems, but she is also part of the leadership group in Taiao. So the types of data sets that are coming in at the moment are overwhelming. For an example, the satellite data that's coming in, you're, you're now able to get satellite imagery that's 0.2 of a meter resolution coming in three times a day. And people are just absolutely overwhelmed. And so one of our aims is to enable people to find the trends and patterns that they need to make decisions and do that much, much more easily. Karen knows this firsthand with her own research modelling turbidity and nutrients in estuaries. So the goal of Taiao is to essentially provide a toolbox of machine learning algorithms for use by those in the environmental research area. So Taiao was funded two years ago and it's a seven-year programme and it's around advancing data science for environmental science problems. So it's a consortium of, well, most of these programmes are big consortiums And so it's with the University of Waikato, Canterbury, Auckland, Becca, the consulting company, the engineering company, and uh, MetService MetOcean. And so Becca, the consulting engineering firm, is arranging our, you know, our platform itself. And then MetService and MetOcean are helping with the data sets, some of the data sets. And then the rest are pretty much all data scientists working on advancing the code, which is the main core of the program. Data scientists such as Dr. Nick Lim, who works at the University of Waikato on Taiao. The start of the day, I would probably look at my, my notebooks and see what results I got from my run from a previous day. Sometimes training the models will take out the whole night. Then throughout the day, I'll just mostly modify my code, look at the results and see uh, what's wrong with the results or what's right with the results, and think of how I can improve on it. Then comes to the end of the day, I'll just let it run for the rest of the day, and then the cycle okay. repeats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When Nick says notebooks, he's not talking about paper bound together with some staples. 
These are online notebooks that outline why and how the modeling is done and have links to the code for the algorithms. So what Nick and the other data scientists in Taiwan are focusing on are the stickier problems related to environmental data. Things like identifying and predicting anomalies and extreme events. The reason those are difficult is because you don't have a lot of events to learn from. So machine learning is basically based on patterns, and if you don't have enough uh, events happening, there's not much pattern you can actually glean it from. It's basically a huge challenge in machine learning. It's not the only tricky problem to think about in the environmental data space. Drifting baselines is another one, and the reason being is when a baseline drifts, all your statistics, all your data changes through time, and so. If you go back through time to look for events to train your model, well, they're not going to be the same because they're gradually drifting, and that's a really topical problem because of climate change. Um, and well, for an example, storm surges changing in the future, and so we can't use past events. And so, how do you create a model that updates its learning through time? Interpretability is another big theme because a lot of people don't. Like machine learning, because they think it's a black box and it gets the right answers for the wrong reasons. And so, can we go and open up the box and figure out why it, it produced that result and understand a little bit about the underlying processes using the outcomes of machine learning? This is pretty neat. So the machine learning algorithm can do all this rapid thinking and come out with an idea of how something is working. Then, by tracing backwards through the code, we can learn about a real-world physical connection that otherwise researchers might have overlooked. At the moment, we've got one on marine extremes, so heat waves in the ocean, and、um, the student that's working on that project is looking for which part of the global ocean best makes the prediction, and so that they've determined that that's best. Made for the Bay of Plenty by using information that's close to the equator, and so if you know that, then you can develop a a precursor where you look there and you know that well next summer and the next three months is going to be bad because we've got this signal coming from the equatorial region. So these are sticky things related to one type of machine learning realm: regression problems or prediction. The second category of problems machine learning can tackle are classification problems. A classification problem is what you do when you look at your phone and it recognizes your face. It's classifying your face against what it knows to be the rightful owner, and then, well, obviously, you get into your phone if it's right. And both are kind of based on patterns and just yes, feeding yes. in enough data、yep. so that the machine can understand what the pattern is. Yes, that's、yep. right. Very fancy names for something that is technically quite simple—not simple to do. But simple to understand, and then the difficulty is how do the algorithms actually work? On the classification side of things for environmental data, the team are also working to improve confidence in what the algorithm is saying, or at least to give it a score on how accurate it actually is. Machine learning is really, really good at recognizing objects in video and classifying them, but if you're going to have management decisions weighing on those classifications, you need some probability of them being right or wrong. And so,、uh, one of the groups of people are working on、um, making them more accurate, or at least ascertaining what the accuracy is. And so, that's the predator camera work, and they're working on 
you know, detecting possums and rats and ferrets, and what's the probability of getting that right? So the probability that the machine has correctly identified a ferret on your camera? Yes, that's right. So um, as it stands right now, machine learning can't be too confident in their prediction. So um, calibrating that probability is then a challenge in machine learning. We need to be able to, to give a reasonable estimate to know when the machine learning algorithm is wrong so that experts is able to make a, a more informed decision. What's really interesting for me here is the space where data scientists and environmental researchers meet. Karen describes part of her role on Taiao as a dataset matchmaker. I know a lot of people working in slightly different areas. And so if someone says to me, we really need this kind of data set, I can think, oh, well, now I worked on that project with so-and-so from Niwa or so-and-so, and I bet they have a really cool data set that would be perfect for that. And then I can go and ring them up. But working in this environmental modelling space herself, she has learned a lot from interacting with the wider Taiyao team. A novice machine learner, like I would call myself a novice machine learner, we just stick everything in, everything. But then someone who's more attuned to the techniques can pick bits and remove them and strip it back and only put the bits in that are really important to understanding the pattern. And so that takes some know-how to know how to do that with those algorithms. And these guys have been showing me how to use notebooks, which are amazing. They're basically, rather than just getting the code, you get the code in what looks a bit like a Word document. And it can have photos and inspirations and an introduction. And then you come along to the code, and it's just a little box there, and you run that bit. And then you go back to the text and the explanation, and then another bit of code and a diagram comes up, and it's live. So you can press it and it reanalyzes it. And um, they've sort of indicated to me that that might be the future of publishing. Like you'll have papers that are actually essentially live and they'll recalculate and re-update on the published website. So I've had a lot of uh, eye-opening experiences. For Nick and the other data scientists, they want to build efficient algorithms, good at doing their job, whatever that job might be. But speaking to those who are working in the space lends important context. Most of the time we look at data sets just as numbers and we have no idea what, the, what it means. But those numbers mean something to the environmental scientists and they provide us with the domain knowledge for us to understand the data and to actually know whether our machine learning algorithms are actually doing the right thing. At the moment, Nick is working on a project with regional councils to forecast river levels after rainfall so that they can better predict flooding starting with the Coromandel region. Once the algorithm is created, he will run it several times in the same data set to optimise it. Then he will try to generalise it to other data sets. Like, can it also predict flooding in different regions? Then he will make it freely available on taiao.ai for people to use and tweak themselves, following in the footsteps of something called Weka. Now, to you and me, Weka is the name of a native flightless brown bird. But for many in the global machine learning research field, it means something else. The um, model that we're working off is the Weka model, right? Um, Which has been going for 20 years. When Weka was first developed, the University of Waikato didn't commercialize it at all, just provided it free and um, developed this huge following, which is basically why we're a center of data science to begin with, is from that. 
that's why finding really good data sets is important because we want to pick data sets that will get us known for solving good problems and then people will come and begin to use our, our new site and um, get addicted to it, hopefully. They want to create a vibrant community of people around the world using the algorithms and sharing their tweaks, data sets and publications. All working towards that goal of using these large amounts of data to answer important environmental questions and guide good decisions. Thanks to Professor Karen Bryan and Dr Nick Lim, both part of the Taiao program at the University of Waikato. Vaccines when you're an infant, annual flu shots, tetanus injections when you cut your finger, insulin for diabetics, intravenous drug delivery, blood draws, and of course, not forgetting, a triple shot COVID-19 vaccine across the last two years. There's generally a lot of needles in our lives. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one who feels a bit faint when I see them coming. Needles have remained the best way to deliver injections for hundreds of years. But could we ditch them in the future? Or at least have a viable alternative? Without hesitation, we predict a revolution in jabs. No more the dreaded needle. The high-pressure injector used at Guy's Hospital sends the vaccine through the pores of the skin and you don't feel a thing. There's no needle to be sterilised for every jab, no risk of infection. And the jet injector is twice as effective as the syringe. Actually, needle-free injectors have been around for a long time, since the 1950s. Dr Robert Hingson was one of the pioneers, introducing the Hingson Peace Gun in 1956. His idea was that you could use multi-use injectors to do immunisation projects more efficiently, like US Army immunisations. And so, in the 1950s and 60s, bulky injectors that used pressurised gas were used to give an estimated 1,000 injections per hour to troops. However, it was quite painful and often left a scar. And worse, it was found that these multi-use injectors were responsible for spreading disease. So, for a time, they were used around the world, not just in the US Army, but in developing countries to inoculate against diseases like smallpox. But the risks of bloodborne infection meant that this multi-use of needle-free injectors had stopped by the 1990s. And it switched instead to single-use. You can buy jet injectors now if you wish to deliver some sort of drug. That's Professor Andrew Tabiner of the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. Most of them that are on the market, in fact all of them that are on the market, are powered either by springs, and so you charge them a little bit the same way that you would charge an air rifle by cranking a lever to put energy into the spring. Others are delivered by tanks of compressed gas. Now both of those techniques have some shortcomings. You don't have really any control over how much force is produced by the spring or by how much volume of liquid is ejected. The benefit of using an electric motor is that our motors are very fast, they are silent, and we can control the speed and therefore the depth of the drug that it penetrates into the skin while it is being delivered. And there's no other technology that is on the market at the moment or really under a lot of research, exploration and laboratories that enables that sort of benefit. In the early 2000s, Andrew was working at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where the lab he was in developed this electric motor-based jet injector. Now at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute, he and his team 
including postdoctoral researcher James McKegg, are doing further research into how to optimise this injection technology. The ability to study those kinds of questions about how jet injection works, what makes it better or what makes it worse, to answer those questions is actually really difficult if you've just got one spring and only one form of injection you can do. That doesn't allow the same systematic study that using motors to kind of look at what happens when you use different pressures or different speeds and different volumes. And so that's kind of the real power of what we have here in this lab, I think. First things first, how does it actually work to get the liquid into the skin? Here's Andrew. Well, it's a little bit like a water blaster, I suppose, at the microscopic level. And when I was a child, I used to play in my sandpit and I would use a a high-speed water nozzle. I remember playing with that. And if you pointed it at the ground, you could use that nozzle to burrow a hole into the dirt. And that was a lot of fun. And at the microscopic level and at very fast timescales, that's basically what a jet injector does. It creates a hair-thin, high-speed stream of the drug. And that drug hits the skin and pierces it and no needle is required. The liquid is itself, effectively, the needle. You still need to break the skin in some way to get the liquid in there. So it's not like it's entirely painless. You'll still feel it. But Andrew reckons they provide a few benefits compared to needles. One of these is, of course, that people really dislike needles. Needle phobia is pretty ubiquitous, particularly in children. And so a needle-free device obviously removes the need for that pointy thing that people are scared of and dislike. There's also the fact that many drugs are far more effective when delivered by this sort of needle-free jet approach. The way that the drug disperses in the skin or underneath the skin is slightly different with a needle-free jet injector than with a needle, which is a relatively slow process. There's, of course, the issue of avoiding needle stick injury, which is an advantage, of course. But to be frank, the costs of this are that the injectors can be more expensive than a needle and syringe, which is pretty difficult to to compete with on a mass scale because plastic and, and stainless steel is pretty cheap. James thinks maybe it just hasn't been optimised properly yet. And that's what he's aiming to address with his work. He has examples of both the spring-based and the electric motor injectors to show me. So there's a little bit of work getting the spring one ready because you've got to kind of crank the spring back. Um, So I'll grab that one first. So you've got to first kind of load up the fluid and put that aside while we grab this somewhat scary looking thing. And I think possibly this is why maybe a lot of people don't know about jet injectors because there's little things that maybe take away from the fact that You know, the main benefit is needles are not so scary, but when you have to apply so much force to a spring to cock it back, ready to push something into your body, maybe that um, anxiety (laughs) is almost the same as having to look at a needle. And so um, you can buy this device online, and it's approved. I think they mainly market it for insulin delivery for diabetics. And so what happens is there's just a bit of metal. It's like a little piston, a rod that's going to push on the back of this piston to apply the force and build up the pressure in there. And what I've done with that device is actually just push that back until the spring is compressed and kind of held in place and ready to release. And so then after you screw that ampule into place and it's full, when I press a button on the back, it's kind of going to go whack and deliver that fluid. I was not ready for that. (laughs) Where did that even go? (laughs) Uh, It's kind of travelling so fast that when the jet interacts with the air, it kind of ends up um, almost atomising and and 
kind of just becoming a cloud of humidity, I guess. <laughs> you know, when that's up against the skin, for the first maybe millimetre or two, that's really travelling as a nice thin jet that is able to penetrate. But you wouldn't successfully deliver fluid if you're holding back away from the tissue because it would do what we just saw there, where it kind of just goes into a puff of, yeah, you something like a cloud. You just have a mist. Yeah, yeah, just like a mist. Next, James charges up the electric motor injector he has. I need to fill it up. Um, so here we go. And again, it just disappears. <laughs> yeah, we could do another one really quick, maybe. So yeah, the main sound you get, you still hear something, don't you? But it's mainly just the sound of that fluid being pushed out a hole, like a tiny sneeze or something. <laughs> yeah, rather than the spring. Yeah, time. rather than that whack that you yeah. kind of hear, or the, the loud click, I guess. Does that hurt? So I, another great question and another kind of thing that hasn't really properly been resolved in jet injection. There are a lot of studies out there asking about pain, but there's no one jet injection, just like there's kind of no one needle. It's going to hurt more if you use a bigger needle, like it's going to hurt more if you squirt that jet in at a higher pressure to a deeper bit of tissue. And so again, I think that's where our ability to control the jet speed and begin to understand exactly how pain relates to the volume and the speed of delivery and things like that uh, is really what's needed to make an effective jet injection system out there because it's, as Andrew was saying before, it's, it's a little bit remarkable that this technique that really no one's heard about has been around since the middle of last century. The army's tried it and didn't really work and clearly it hasn't been developed in such a way that uh, people are ready to pick these things up and actually replace needles with them. So why, why have we not been able to build one that everybody's you know, rushing to throw away their needles and pick up their jet injector instead? And it's about getting it right in terms of the speed, maybe even the size of the orifice, the shape of the orifice, things like that, that we're, you know, looking forward to studying in this lab. How do you go about that? How do you view where liquid is going within a tissue, within the skin? Yeah, so we've got a couple of techniques. Um, one of them that we have in this lab uses a near-infrared light, so that's light that is just out of what is visible to the human eye, but it's actually a wavelength of light that your tissue is quite transparent to. Um, so you can think of it as kind of a, almost like an x-ray and that can penetrate you know at least many millimeters through the tissue um, if not centimeters and allow us to see where we've delivered the drug. He brings me over to the setup he has to investigate this. A metal frame holds the injector vertically above a little perspex box that James puts pig skin into as the closest mimic of human skin. A camera is set up in front of this little box to record everything. What you can see behind the Perspect box is a large array of LEDs. I think there's about 28 of them in there. And so they shine at that right wavelength that penetrates through tissue, but what our camera is still sensitive to. And then as we penetrate it into the tissue, we would be able to see where the fluid goes in the tissue because it begins to block that near infrared light. And that kind of comes through to the camera as a, as a shadow. So what kind of practical applications has James been investigating? Well, one thing he's been working on for quite some time is a diabetes management approach. So the big idea there, the big dream, is that we can squirt out a tiny bit of fluid just to break through the top layer of skin and then reverse our motor to suck back and suck back any fluid that might have been released, hopefully blood, in that just really shallow bit of tissue, kind of like a lancet but with a jet. And then hopefully be able to do a glucose measurement very rapidly on board the device and then... Perhaps we've also got the insulin we need ready to inject. And so the injector might be able to break through the skin, 
suck back the sample, measure glucose, and then what would feel like instantaneously deliver the appropriate amounts of insulin based on that measurement that's just been made on board. So all in one? All in one. That's the big dream. The insulin delivery side of things is easy. That's what Jet Injection's been doing for a while. There, that comes back to questions about how do we do it best to make it less painful and things like that, or make sure we get to the right depth. The big scientific challenge for us has been in that project doing a very shallow jet injection with as little fluid as possible because, you know, the less we inject in, the less it might hurt and the, the more consistently we'll be able to go very shallow in the tissue. And then looking at how much fluid we can actually get back out by sucking back with our motor or kind of just by leaving the wound and letting it bleed. And so we recently did a study looking at that aspect of whether or not we could release blood with one of our devices. You know, if we weren't able to do that, then that big dream of an all-in-one device is a little bit over. So they did a study with 20 participants, who each volunteered four fingertips for science. They did a lancet prick on one finger and a jet injection with a small amount of saline solution on the other fingers, with three differently shaped and sized nozzles. And they did find that the jet injector puncture was able to release enough blood to do a blood glucose test. So the dream is still alive. They also asked the volunteers about pain. It's interesting, like I think a lot of previous studies, it can be highly variable. A lot of people um, got a bit of a fright as the lancet went in or, yeah, all the jet injections. And so actually, I think on average, the jet injection hurt a little bit more than the lancet. Uh, But... It's the first time that we tried that in the fingertips of people. No one's done that with jet injection before. And the tough challenge there is that you've got a very tough outer layer of skin to get through. So once you get through, making sure you don't get too deep and causing any more pain than you need to can be quite tough. And so we were able to show that our device did successfully break the skin. But I think we learned a lot in terms of what we might do next time in terms of controlling that process a bit better and improving The outcomes for the jet injection side, I think we're all pretty optimistic that we could make that a lot less painful. The next stage, James says, is that a PhD student in the lab is working on adding a vacuum to the process to collect up the blood sample for the glucose test. This work is part of a larger project, so colleagues in the universities of Otago and Canterbury are working on other aspects. The other parts of the team are looking at, you know, models to perhaps create patient-specific ways of linking those glucose measurements to how much insulin we should deliver, Um, and also uh, looking at ways of measuring the actual insulin in the blood rather than using the glucose measurement, which is commonly done. Another thing that James is investigating is how you could use needle-free jet injection to deliver larger volumes. So there's quite a few drugs, particularly new uh, biologic drugs, monoclonal antibodies, um, things like that, that are being developed that are quite viscous and you need quite a large volume to deliver um, the appropriate dose into the body. And so what that means is actually those doses can be so high that uh, a typical needle-based delivery isn't appropriate. So you need to go into hospital and actually have an IV delivery. And one of the difficult things with that is that you have people having to go into hospital. There's a lot of kind of medical expertise required to make sure you plumb into the vein appropriately, when fundamentally all we want to do is put that drug into the body. And so if you could replace that with, you know, an auto-injector style device that, that could actually deliver that amount of volume underneath the skin, that could result in, you know, really huge savings, efficiency to the healthcare system and, you know, be a bit more equitable in terms of access to care for rural communities, things like that. Because if people have to come into the hospital, much larger burden if you live a long way from, you know, the relevant facilities. So the team worked out that 
there is a limit for the volume you can inject in one stream. You can't just keep making that jet blast bigger and bigger. But now James's approach is looking at parallel jet injections from the same device to get that increased volume. And so that's the idea with what I refer to as a multi-orifice device um, or a showerhead type system where, you know, if, if it's hard to deliver more than about one milliliter through a jet injection because the tissue starts to become full in that region, why not do another one kind of just a centimetre away and double the delivery volume? And then why not add another 10 orifices? And that would get you up to those volumes that would typically need intravenous delivery. And so that's when you would start re replacing this hospital-based care that's very expensive with maybe an auto-injector-style device at home. Like I said, the basic technology of needle-free jet injection has been around for a while, but it hasn't taken off. So I asked James, with all his research in this space, does he see a future where this is widely used? Or will it always be for niche uses only? No, I certainly do see a future where this technology is, is widely adopted. I, it remains to be seen whether or not it can be as convenient as the needle and syringe currently are, where you can kind of put any needle on any syringe and the healthcare professional has kind of control over where they put that by how deep they put the needle. And so you're competing with something that's, you know, centuries old and that doctors are very comfortable with and have a lot of confidence in. What we need to do really is get a full understanding of this process so that we can produce outcomes that are so consistent that the doctors can have that same level of confidence when they pick one of these devices up. And the difficulty might be that the settings change dramatically between the different delivery procedures. Now it's quite easy for a nurse to pick up a small needle and put it in the muscle to deliver a vaccine and then get a completely different needle and syringe and deliver a more shallow delivery into the fat for some other reason. But there's quite a lot of understanding that we need in order to know how, you know, the settings on our device, what pressure should we deliver at to change between these outcomes and, you know, what other things might affect how painful that process is for the patient and all of these questions are, are kind of yet to be definitively answered. Um, and that's what we're hoping to achieve here. Thanks to Professor Andrew Tabiner and Dr. James McKaig, both from the Auckland Bioengineering Institute. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with editing help from Justin Gregory. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. You can find and follow Our Changing Worlds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. If advanced tech is your thing, then you might be interested in giving RNZ's Sci-Fi Sci-Fact a listen. In this podcast, experts from the McDiamond Institute take an idea from fiction and see how it stands up to scientific scrutiny. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.